Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 233 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I chat with distiller Matt Power of Tamworth Distilling, located in idyllic Tamworth, New Hampshire. Now, if you're a regular listener, you've probably heard me talk with distillers before. So you might be thinking, what's so special about this Matt Power fella? Well, you see, Matt has a background in biochemistry, and he's not afraid to use it. The theme of our conversation is the various ways in which he's used meat and other offbeat ingredients to flavor different whiskeys in the House of Tamworth collection. We're talking venison-flavored whiskey, Thanksgiving dinner-flavored whiskey, beaver gland-flavored whiskey, and more. But before we dive deep into this very special region of the flavored whiskey category, let's take a moment so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is a Tamworth Distilling original called Old Hamp's Secret. To make it, you'll need two ounces of Old Hampshire Applejack, one lemon wheel, one mint sprig, and a half ounce of simple syrup. In a cocktail shaker, muddle the lemon wheel to release the juices. Then add the remaining ingredients and fill with ice. Give it a good hard shake and double strain into a rocks glass filled with crushed ice. This is where the garnish comes in. Grab that mint sprig, give it a good slap to show it who's boss and to activate those essential oils, then garnish and enjoy. This drink straddles the line between an old-fashioned whiskey sour and a mint julep, and it's a refreshing summary way to enjoy what Tamworth does so well. They take traditional spirits like Applejack and cocktails like the julep and present them to you in a format that has a definitive sense of place. So now that you've got a new way to enjoy a traditional dram of American apple brandy, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this flavorful conversation with distiller Matt Power of Tamworth Distilling, some of the topics we cover include how the House of Tamworth series began as a research initiative designed to understand what the FDA considers acceptable flavoring ingredients, and then snowballed into a passion project highlighting uncommon or underappreciated flavors and aromas. Why the flavored whiskey category has developed a slightly subpar reputation, and what Matt and his team are doing to elevate this category. How Matt employs some serious technology, namely a rotary evaporator, to isolate flavors and aromas from nature and infuse those compounds into their spirits in a very strategic way. We also sample the Deer Slayer whiskey from the House of Tamworth collection, which was inspired partially by a German fermented sausage dish and partially by the aromas of hardwood smoke that you'll smell wafting on the breeze during a New Hampshire winter. 
Along the way, we cover other important topics like maple syrup infused with dead people, the seductive stink of the corpse flower, strategies for combating invasive green crabs, and much, much more. This interview will be a real delight for anyone who's interested in the cutting edge of flavor design in the spirits industry. This space is exciting to me because anyone who dwells here isn't so much interested in what a spirit is, for example, the technical differences between rum and cachaça or cognac and armagnac, but rather what a spirit can be. By passing his technical understanding of organic compounds through the lenses of flavor, place, and memory, Matt is able to build spirits that transport you to a remote deer camp or a Thanksgiving table, or even a steamy encounter of the most intimate variety. This, to me, is where flavor blurs into art. This is what the team at Tamworth Distilling does best, and this is why I'm so excited to share with you a fascinating conversation with distiller and flavor architect, Matt Power. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, good to be here. So let's kick this off as we always do by having you introduce yourself to our guests. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm Matt Power. I work at Tamworth Distilling as a distiller. I make a lot of the flavored products here and uh, I come from a background of uh, science, biochemistry and organic chemistry. That has been an interesting uh, fusion with the spirits world over the last nearly nine years. Yeah, I think that your background in uh, chemistry and specifically the biochemistry side of it is going to come into play here as as our conversation evolves. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about Tamworth, Vermont? I can't tell you about Tamworth, Vermont. Tamworth, New Hampshire is um, where I grew up, and it's a wonderful place. Uh, we're right here in the central part of the state right at the foothills of the White Mountains and just north of the Lakes region. So we're in a nice place. It's a small town and um, a great place to visit. Yeah, this is what I get for uh, actually reading from my notes here instead of uh, <laughs> trusting my gut because I looked at that and I was like, Tamworth, Vermont? I thought it was New Hampshire. Okay, uh, so now that we've gotten that little miscue out of the way, you know, the main reason why I'm so keen to talk to you is because, you know, you work for this distillery that has a portfolio of many different spirits and you've got some spirits that, you know, people would look at and be like, oh yeah, makes sense. Um, you know, some whiskeys and some other types of spirits. But then you also have this collection of spirits that is decidedly different in tone and it, it seems to have an entirely different project altogether. Um, so could, I guess you talk about the spirits program at Tamworth distilling in general, and then maybe shift our attention to the house, the house of Tamworth series. Absolutely. So, um, the ethos here at Tamworth distilling has largely been to make spirits that are representative of our area. We tend to do a fair amount of foraging and gathering inspiration from the landscape and the natural world around us, as well as the agricultural heritage of our communities. And that is uh, a really gratifying and fun project to undertake because as we're making products, oftentimes, you know, there are so many options. It's nice to have some focus and it's nice to bring uh, a deeper layer of authenticity to what we're trying to do here. 
the House of Tamworth line fits into that in a really unique way um, in that the whiskeys are flavored whiskeys and they're flavored as a theme with something that I don't think anyone's ever really dived into very much or at all, um, which is using meats or animal flavorings um, to adorn the whiskeys with nuance and subtlety. Mm -hmm. The project started uh, many years ago, actually, uh, with kind of just a survey of what the FDA will actually allow us to use in spirits ingredient wise, which was an interesting lesson to learn about what is authorized and what is not. It's not always intuitive what you can put in a food product. So we were surveying this list or these series of lists and we came across something that reminded us of probably what we might've considered an urban legend, which was um, the use of beaver castor glands in food. So here in this list of, you know, largely plants and other things that you might think normal to put in food, here was this product, animal gland, and we were really intrigued by it. And we kind of investigated a little bit. I think we ordered a castor gland from some random place on the internet and we smelled it. We were like, wow, that's really unique. And we got to thinking about how that could work in a product, how it, you know, just as a curiosity more than anything. And uh, yeah, it, it ended up panning out. It had really interesting leathery notes. It had this distinctive depth that really drew us to the natural world, which was a deep part of our ethos. Yeah. Beaver caster. Now, so I am actually from not too far from where you're located. Uh, I'm from the Pioneer Valley in Western Massachusetts. And uh, you can confirm in in this area of the Northeast, there's a lot of beavers. And, um, you know, I grew up with beaver dams uh, all over um, the kind of woods and wetlands where I lived and roamed. Um, beaver caster gland. Uh, to be honest, this is something that I had heard on a podcast a couple of years ago. Maybe it was the speakeasy or something like that. And I had sort of like filed it away in my brain as something that was like, you know, an, an oddity or a curiosity, um, yeah. something, but something that maybe was being done slightly under the radar, you know, kind of like the way that certain bartenders for a while were infusing things with tobacco in ways that they shouldn't have right. been something mm -hmm. that was maybe a blip on the radar, but clearly for Tamworth, this is not a blip on the radar. This, this became, as you said, uh, you know, it started with an examination of what's allowed and mm -hmm. has turned into something that's, uh, gained momentum or, you know, gained, uh, some sort of mass in your project portfolio. So I, I guess my one little technical follow-up on what you've said so far is, is you mentioned the FDA. Now, when I think of people trying to figure out what's okay and what's not okay in the distilling world, generally the regulatory body that's referenced is the TTB. That's so right. how, how does the negotiation between FDA and TTB work? This is sort of a, a, that's a, a curiosity question. of mine. Yeah. Um, well, the TTB is sort of the gatekeeper um, between us producers and the code of federal regulations, largely. Anything that is going to be consumed by people, though, is ultimately the, the rules are dictated by the FDA. So the TTB largely will look at the distinctive rules that the FDA lays down, um, and they 
interpret those pretty much verbatim. In the case of the castorium from the beaver, we didn't actually have to deal with the FDA. Um, we just pretty much, you know, I'm not even sure we had to reference the section in the Code of Federal Regulations that allowed it. Uh, however, we have had to do that since then in a, a number of cases where the TTB has questions and we actually have to reach out directly to the FDA. And, um, you know, we've had a couple instances where they've had to kind of convene these panels to discuss ways that we could do this in ways that are both safe and acceptable for human consumption. Sure. This actually reminds me of a conversation that I had with past guest uh, Taka Amano, who uh, brought Koji back to the U.S. from Japan. And when you know he was questioned by the TTB about you know what he was put or the FDA, some, somebody was somebody was a little skeptical of him wanting to bring black mold you know into the U.S. right um, on a plane. So. Um, the other thing that I will just mention to folks who might be curious about this from a regulatory standpoint is that there is, as far as I understand it, one place where you can go to dig into this subject matter a little bit more, and that would be the GRAS list, the generally regarded as safe list. So if you're curious about things that you can use as a food or, you know, by extension, beverage flavoring that generally regarded as safe list is one of those documents that kind of bridges the gap between the TTB and the FDA. So if anyone's curious about, you know, what's what's good and what's not, that's a place to start. But I wanted to get back to the House of Tamworth series because, you know, it seems like it started with this beaver castorium gland. Uh, with these interesting leathery notes, and it kind of almost reminds me of like maybe a a, a land mammal version of uh, ambergris, right? This uh, this, sure. this whale byproduct. Mm -hmm. um, in my brief research, it seemed like it was used in some perfumery uh, in the past. So, so, what did this? lead to and what other projects like what what did this beaver gland kind of snowball into in terms of other projects in the house of tamworth series and as i ask that question i'm i'm going to pour a sample of one that i actually have here and let it breathe a little bit yeah well we were we were actually quite surprised when we released udamusk the, the castorium flavored whiskey and we we found this outpouring of intrigue about it from all over the country um, all over the world in some cases and we realized that we, we were kind of finding a, a unique niche of curiosity within people. So we indeed started to consider what other options we had. And we looked, you know, in typical fashion back to the landscape of our area. And, um, you know, we have a strong agricultural heritage, but also a strong outdoors person heritage. And so we, we started to consider that a venison flavored whiskey would be an interesting way to go with this. So that was the second product we made. And that product was called Deer Slayer. It was modeled after actually um, a German fermented sausage in a way. So uh, we took the venison, we added um, some other natural ingredients from the area, King Bolete mushrooms, uh, also known as porcinis, cranberries, and a few other things. And we actually fermented that with a sausage culture, which, which provided um, kind of a spicier depth to the aromatic profile and also contributed some lactic acid to it as well. And these, these 
notes kind of work in the products to just add little nuances and deviations to the deep body of the whiskey. These aren't supposed to be notes that are overly dominant within the, the product. I've worked really hard to make sure that these whiskeys remain elegant representations of the base liquid and that they're just sort of accented and decorated in ways that support them uh, subtly. The, the one thing that really stands out about Deer Slayer in particular is that, you know, after we ferment this sausage, it actually is smoked over hardwood smoke. And um, that ends up being probably the most dominant note of the flavorings, which you may have just noticed. Yeah, I just took my first sip here and it, it doesn't come off on the nose as a, a meaty aroma, right? Mm-hmm. It comes off as a, like, as you said, the, the, that word elegant, I think, is so important to the next phase of our conversation here because when you nose it, it's just like, oh man, like that is, elegant is a perfect way to describe it because it's fruity, it's it's got you know, some really nice age notes. I mean, just looking at the color of the spirit, you can tell it's got some nice age on it. Um, but then you're right. Wow. When, when you take that first sip, the smoke, uh, really asserts itself and not in the manner of a smoky Highland or Isla whiskey. It's, it's not a peated smoke. It's not like, a an acrid or oily smoke, Again, it, it it does remind me of sort of the New England landscape because I grew up burning maple and hickory and yep. white oak in Absolutely. a sto- in a wood stove in my basement. And so, you know, you walk outside on a snowy day and you get hit by that hardwood smoke. It's it's very distinct. Is is it a sort of a portfolio of wood smokes here? I imagine hickory or maple were probably in there. It, it, it is a portfolio. The first year we used exclusively maple and applewood. Um, mm. I believe you probably have last year's production, which was actually oak and maple, red oak and okay. maple. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I love the idea of smoke as terroir. Um, you know, it kind of, it, it's right at that junction between people and place right? People create the fire, place creates the wood. I want to return to this idea of elegance because I I think it says a lot about what you're trying to do in relation to other flavored whiskeys as a, as a, as a general category, flavored whiskeys tend to be kind of bombastic. Uh, But before we get there, I don't want to forget, can you tell us about the base liquid? Um, like what, what kind of whiskey is this? Like what, what are you, what is the vessel that is carrying these other aromatics? Absolutely. That's a, that's a good question because each of these products within the line utilize their own unique base whiskey. Um, the Udamusk is a column distilled bourbon base, has a little bit more presence on the palate. The Deer Slayer is a 100% white wheat whiskey. They're aged in oak for four years or more in most cases. So they have a good depth and a good maturation to them. The bases are definitely chosen to support the flavorings that we're trying to put in there. In the case of the Deer Slayer, we really wanted something that was light so that the the nuance and subtlety of 
that fermented venison could potentially come through without being kind of a, a, a really busy presence on the palate. Um, the weed itself is kind of wispy. It has a lot of reminiscence to foods. You might even consider something like a, a, a sandwich or, you know, a bread from it. And um, it really works quite nicely with those other flavors. Um, and the same could be said about the Udamusk, where the corn is a really hearty base note nearly. It really works in conjunction with the castorium to, to produce something that has a very full, deep depth. I love the amount of thought that goes into these products in the House of Tamworth line because to me, uh, it, it's it's kind of one of those little signals or flags that tells me that you know we're not just backsliding into you know hard seltzer. Uh, there are still people out there who are really passionate about doing things really carefully and really thoughtfully. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, um, you know, I, I think of the flavored whiskey category and, you know, I've done some spirits judging and when you get a flight of spirits that is something like spiced rum or flavored whiskey, you kind of, you kind of lean back and you're like, all right, here we go. Like just you know, get, getting ready for some, some real, um, you know, two by fours over the head of, you know, certain flavors. Um, you know, I, I, I think everyone's who's spent time in the spirit space is aware of these, you know, banana and peanut butter flavored whiskeys. And I'm not saying that these single note flavored whiskeys can't be done well because I've had a number of them that, that are done well, but it, it seems like, you're almost doing more of a gin prod a project or like a a curated food project here. The, the way you describe the deer slayer to me strikes me in the same way that a really passionate chef would describe a plate that they've put in front of somebody who's you know uh, judging their restaurant or something. Um, so can you talk about maybe the ways in which? this type of work that you're doing with the house of Tamworth, um, series share similarities with like a, somebody creating a gin or like, like I said, like a chef creating a plate. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you kind of hit the nail on the head that the flavored whiskey category is, it can easily be considered a novelty category. Typically anyone who's had one has noticed they're usually cloyingly sweet. They're very, very intensely flavored, um, probably to meet the expectation of the label. With these products, you know, we're kind of painted into the category of a flavored whiskey just by virtue of there being other ingredients in there. It's an ironic category because, yeah, we do really try to make it into something that has um, an intrigue and it has um, a respectability to it that may not be what people would preconceive as a flavored whiskey. One unique thing about them that does co-align them with gin production is that there is actually very little that is infused in these whiskeys. Um, the way that they're produced is that the base spirit, the base whiskey is infused with these materials. Um, however, it is then distilled on our rotary evaporator, which is a, a really unique piece of equipment within distilleries. And it allows us to do some pretty 
interesting stuff um, to compose these layers of flavor that would be inaccessible on a traditional still. So that's certainly a tool that we use to its full potential to create this kind of um, chef-like composition uh, that we can really consider. We can um, think of it almost like a perfume as well, like a perfumer would start to layer flavors on top of one another. And the reason we can do that is all because of this still. Um, we, We do all of the infusions and distillations independently so that the infusion proofs and distillation proofs are all unique for every ingredient. The cuts are all unique for every ingredient. And this process um, can be considered similar to kind of how a prism will refract light into its constituent wavelengths. And we can select just the wavelengths that we'd like to use in our product, pull them out of the liquid, and then we'll recompile them to kind of create this very unique spectrum that, that overlays with the aged base that we did not redistill. So all of those liquids, when they're distilled, you know, they start as aged whiskey, dark, dark brown sauce. They get distilled, they're then clear, and then we blend them back into uninfused aged whiskey base. So that's what the color comes from. It's certainly still aged whiskey, but, but made in a very gin-like manner. Um, gin is sort of my heart spirit here. I've, I've spent a lot of time making gins, and so this has certainly been an influence on uh, the whiskey program for this series. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're a regular listener of the Modern Bar Cart podcast, you've heard me talk about Near Country quite a bit over the last year, and I have another exciting announcement. They've got cheese, guys. Not only do Adam and his team work with a bunch of awesome local farmers and fishermen here in the Mid-Atlantic to provide you with sustainably raised and delicious proteins, but they've upped the ante yet again, and they now offer delicious cheeses, cow's milk and sheep's milk cheeses that you can subscribe to on a monthly basis or You can just go ahead and add them to your cart as an add-on at any point. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. Becoming a Near Country Provisions subscriber is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. So just to clarify and maybe slow this process down for our listeners so that they can maybe grasp this very complicated process, and you, you just explained it as if it wasn't super complicated. Um, <laughs> and it was a very clear description, but there's one one distinction that I want to slow down on just a little bit. So basically what you've got is you've got, let's say you've got 10 barrels of whiskey. Mm -hmm. You will take a small portion of those barrels or like, let's say, you know, just for the sake of argument, like one barrel in 10, and you will use that as a way to grab some of these flavors as you pass it through the Rotovap. And then you will blend this intensely and very intentionally flavored 
smaller portion of the whiskey back into the rest of it that you have set aside. Is that roughly That's how right. it works? That's right. And, and we do that to both satisfy the depth and character of the base whiskey, but also we want to have really high fidelity representation of these flavors. And oftentimes when you put delicate flavors into a barrel and let them sit for four years, you know, oxygen is going to work on them. Time is going to work on them and they're not going to come out the same way. So, you know, to go back to the culinary analogy, we want these things to be really fresh representations of the ingredients that are going in and we want them to really taste the way they were intended. Um, you know, putting these things on a shelf in your bar, they look good, but like, you know, they're always going to be changing. So they're really, they're designed to be consumed. They're designed to be shared. Um, they're designed to be appreciated sort of for the ethereal nature that they have. There's something to be said for going to the grocery store, going to the condiment section and grabbing a pack of McCormick gravy mix and knowing that every time you open that pack of gravy mix, it's going to taste the same. It's going to be great. You're going to enjoy whatever you put it on. But there's also something to be said for saving up a little bit of cash and treating yourself to a really exquisite meal at you know a Michelin star restaurant where the pan sauce that comes with your filet mignon was carefully prepared a la minute just for you by a chef who's been honing the craft of making this pan sauce for years and whatever garnishes come out on that plate were probably put there you know by a a set of garnish tools and placed just correctly. And, and that seems to me to be more like the process of what you're doing at Tamworth. And the reason why that sort of precision and intentionality resonates with me is because I've been thinking more and more about spirits as collections of particles, uh, collections of particles that create molecules. These molecules are the things that you're isolating in that prismatic way. That's why that you're, that's why, as I understand it, you're using the rotary evaporator to grab and isolate these very specific types of flavor, flavors and aromas. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you had just passed it through a still, the heat of the still and the, the sort of aggressiveness of that process would break them similarly to the way that oxidation in a barrel will break some of these things in the way that you just described. So this, this notion of being very precise and, and very careful with what you're doing, um, you know, really, really gets my brain going. I think this would be a really great time to bring in a couple of the other projects in the house of Tamworth series. And to do that, I'm just going to prompt you with one term and that term is dead bodies. Yeah. Yeah, so so there was one other product that we we put out under this brand that was called Corpse Flower, which was um, a bit of a divergence from our initial goals of using uh, straight animals um, as flavorants, but it kind of fits within the theme of depth and subtlety and nuance. Um, this one was actually inspired by investigations into the essential oil chemistry of flowers. And as a chemist, you know, I really enjoy trying to understand the experience of the world around me um, in chemical terms. And it turns out that, you know, when you're smelling 
a flower or really anything, we're smelling large suites of chemicals that come pile in our brains to create this perception. And the rotary evaporator really allows us to break that experience down into more singular chemical experiences. And studying the essential oil profiles and the chemistry of those essential oils really highlights the, the unusual way that our brains work. And in this particular instance, uh, I started to see a lot of flowers and other things that included smells that really were not desirable from a chemical standpoint, um, things that smell quite foul in large concentrations, but in slight concentrations and in composition with other notes, they end up to have these modif modifying techniques and effects. So corpse flower was sort of a way to explore that realm with, with fruity floral flavors, as well as sort of the foul undernotes that give them their, their beautiful context. Um, corpse flower in uh, that regard used primarily um, the note of indole, which is a, a nitrogen compound that is prominent in many flowers. Um, it's a component of lilac flower scent, black locust flowers, which bloom up and down the streets of Tamworth in early June, and a number of other things. And it really, it's not a great smell when you smell it by itself. It's pretty pronounced. You know, I think evolutionarily, we're not totally evolved to appreciate the smell of nitrogen. Nitrogen smells are usually representative of decomposition or waste. And you can certainly smell that in these compounds at higher concentrations, but in lower concentrations, they end up being intriguing aspects of the human experience. Um, you can think of them as, as carnal, sort of intimate smells in a way. And so it's, it's sort of that perfumery concept of suggestion, but not direct confrontation of these smells that, that gives them a good context in these compositions. I love so many of the words that you just said. Uh, can you spell that indole uh, word for me? Yeah, that's I-N-D-O-L-E. Okay, so like it sounds. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I I published a, an audio essay um, on a, a subject that's not super relevant to what we're talking about here, but the, the title was Sex is uh, Not a Tasting Note. Um, and I remember I got uh, a a comment, uh, from somebody who was kind of like referencing the title and not the subject matter and being like, uh, kind of like, well, could sex be a tasting note? And it's like, well, uh, I actually think it could, uh, but you got to get real rigorous and real specific and real experiential about what aspect of sex you're referring to as, as your tasting note. So in the same way that, you know, my, my good friend, uh, Ethan likes to refer to, you know, hospital fire as his favorite, uh, scotch tasting note for these, you know, iodine -y kind of whiskeys. It's like, mm -hmm. I, I think, I think that these, as you said, carnal, uh, suggestions, right? It's it's not like it's not like you're beating us over the head with stink, uh, but some of these suggestions uh, are places where you're right. I, we don't experience them a lot, and so when you have this opportunity to take your expertise 
as somebody who understands these, you know, kind of stanky nitrogenous smells and work this into your project, I, that to me is the blue sky of this kind of uh, exploration because there's not a lot of people who have the type of skill set and the type of, you know, collision of science and distilling and, you know, oh, by the way, a rotovap that, that you have uh, at Tamworth. So uh, really, really intriguing. Um, I, it also reminds me of the term rancio, which is something that has a really, really long and deep tradition in European spirits, um, you know, uh, in the oxidized wines and um, in the cognac and armagnac uh, tradition. And when you were talking about how you fermented, you lacto-fermented the uh, the venison before you work that into the uh, the deer slayer, which uh, which we tasted earlier, uh, reminded me of that rancio uh, of hanging game or hanging meat, and uh, you know it goes back to the 1700s. If you read the meditations on tran- transcendental gastronomy, all you'll all you'll notice is this uh, this author going on and on about the, the merits of hanging pheasants and stuff like that. So it's it it, it does if you if you do your research, tie back to some really traditional things. So do you, do you ever think about Roncio in as something that you kind of play with in this respect? Yeah, uh, very similar concept. The concept of age is a unique thing to consider how our minds um, compile that. Uh, because I think most people, most people would understand when you said something smells old, they would be able to grasp what that means. And I've done a lot of thinking on what that means myself. And I've certainly tried to incorporate those into my products because things that are old generally feel and seem and are experienced as precious. Um, They're rare. And they're rare because they've been preserved for a period of time and they've lasted. So the act of fermenting things particularly can provide those as well as, you know, allowing time to work on them in the case of Rancido. Yeah. So fermenting the the venison certainly, certainly does that. It provides a lot of deeper notes. Some nitrogen containing compounds are produced and um, things with nitrogen are a little bit less volatile. And so those tend to be lingering around for longer and they do suggest um, age and they do give this sort of subconscious suggestion of the heritage of of what you're consuming. That's a really interesting point. You know, earlier you mentioned the term irony, and it seems to me that another irony in what we're talking about here is that when you see people doing sciencey chemistry rotovapy stuff to spirits or to you know culinary things you get the sense of sterile laboratory um, kind of engine over maybe overly engineered end products um, mm-hmm. they, they remind us of of cars and robots instead of spirits that are the result of natural uh, ingredients and processes. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm putting words in your mouth here, I think the the real joy 
of the House of Tamworth series and what you're doing is that you're doing the sciency, labby, rotovapy things to these spirits, but you're doing it in service of making them feel almost more natural and more of a place. Does that is, is that somewhere in the right ballpark? Absolutely. Yeah. The the rotovap is a really critical tool that we use. Um, but we don't use it just because we have it. You know, it really is, it's a way to express nature and present nature in ways that are really challenging to do so in a liquid form. You know, if, if you were to go out and try to collect pigments and then paint a picture with them, you'd be dealing with all sorts of challenges. The fidelity of what you're taking from nature and then trying to transcribe to the, the paper and so what we're trying to do is take some of that muddiness out of the experience of taking nature and putting it in a bottle. And um, the Rotovap is really a critical component of that. It lets us distill things at low temperatures. It lets us really focus on singular ingredients and, and honor them the way that we appreciate them experientially. Yeah, it's been a really fun and fascinating process to learn how to do that with this unique piece of equipment. Have you ever read or encountered the book Neurogastronomy by Gordon Shepard? I've heard of it. I've never actually perused it, though. I think you would get a, a huge kick out of it because uh, what the book does is it, it walks through the path that aroma and flavor take through our sensory organs and then up through the various levels of processing and encoding mm. that occur in our brain. And the way that you're talking about like fidelity and the way that you're talking about like things that you're doing to avoid the losses in fidelity make me think really hard about the almost pointillist way that these images enter our brain through our senses. And mm -hmm. so I think that you'd probably get a real kick out of uh, checking that book out. It's, it's okay. a, it's a tough read for somebody like me who doesn't have the sciency background, but I think for you, it would be a really gratifying read. So I definitely, definitely recommend um, checking that out. Um, I certainly will. So what, what are we missing here uh, in the house of Tamworth series? Is there, is there anything that uh, we've overlooked? I mean, I think we may have overlooked a certain maple tree produces a certain syrup. So I don't know if you want to hit that um, before we move on. We, we do that one that's called grave robber uh, made with maple syrup. That's collected from uh, a graveside cemetery. Um, the, the maple trees line this old, probably late 1700s, early 1800s era cemetery. And um, it was something of a taboo and it, it continues to be a taboo um, to tap trees that are sort of on that hallowed ground. So that was one experiment we took um, to make a whiskey. We've got some other things within the House of Tamworth line that are kind of unique. We put out a roasted turkey flavored whiskey last year, actually, which was an interesting concept that sort of we really wanted that to smell like Thanksgiving day. And so the whole process, everything was prepared exactly the way it would be prepared on Thanksgiving day, which is an interesting concept uh, to kind of, oftentimes I make all of my cuts and I make all of the flavors have their um, reflections of experience on the rotary evaporator. Um, in that case, the preparation took precedent over the evaporator in that, 
the cooking of the materials really kind of made my cuts for me. You know, cooking things, it smells up the whole room and smelling up the whole room is essentially a form of distillation. So it was an interesting process to try to tease out what we wanted to put in the liquid um, because ultimately, you know, when you eat Thanksgiving dinner, the flavors that you're consuming and experiencing are different than those that you're filling the room with. So there's like this sort of dichotomy of experience that to try to put into a bottle was actually a really um, fascinating intellectual exercise. Yeah, I bet. What are some of the uh, some of the ingredients that you used in that project? Yeah, we used um, a lot of the really traditional stuff. Um, we used some kabocha squash. We used some uh, local turkey that was grown across the street at the bear farm. We used uh, some flint corn, made some cornbread. We made authentic stuffing, um, made some cranberry sauce, used some, some uh, local apples and uh, made some deep apple water that provides this um, very, very rich um, diluent essentially. So rather than proof down the whiskey with water, we actually um, used essentially uh, the steam distillate from the cranberry sauce, as well as the steam distillate from the applesauce that we made from these apples. Uh, we put some chestnuts in there, um, which, you know, at the time of the first Thanksgiving would have been an abundant mass crop for both people and animals. So we really tried to incorporate a lot of things from the landscape that were both available and um, would have been available over the past 400 years. Yeah. I, I would love to uh, hope, hopefully make it up to uh, Tamworth at some point, maybe on one of my road trips home, because uh, it, it, it seems like, you know, by bottling these spirits in, in the careful way that you do, you, you do the place justice. But I feel like, you know, just as you're describing how, you know, the experience of like a, a really fragrant meal like Thanksgiving is not just about what you're shoveling into your face. It's about, you know, the aroma of the room. I, I would I would love to understand these spirits in the context of the place where they're created. Um, so to that end, um, you know, if anyone listening is like me and is like, oh, man, I'd love to I'd love to visit this place. Um, you know, what what is the setup like? Um uh, how does one, you know, roll through Tamworth, New Hampshire and uh, maybe uh, get a peek at what you guys are doing? Yeah, uh, it's very, very simple. Um, Tamworth is a small town. We've got a very small main street. We've got a few businesses on it. And the distillery is right smack dab in the middle of sort of the historic business district, shall we say. And I say that very loosely. There's there's an old historic theater across the street. We've got um, a historic farm that's now a nonprofit museum and um, sort of exhibition of how agriculture has happened over the, the centuries. We've got a, a bakery right here in town, a wonderful bakery called Sunnyfield. And um, yeah, all you've got to do is drive right down Main Street. It's a beautiful little quarter mile drive and you'll come to the distillery where We've got a tasting room set up. You can come in, you can sample an abundance of spirits. We often have anywhere from 15 to 20 on the tasting bar for samples. You can take those down behind the distillery to the Swift River, where we've got some tables set up in the shade. You know, we're doing food options. We've got some cocktail classes that are offered. 
and other special events that if you tune into the social media, you'll be sure to hear all about. Awesome. Awesome. And I think that pretty much brings us up to up to like pretty much up to date. Uh, what about new stuff? Is there anything sort of on the horizon that you're excited about, either in terms of spirits that you're releasing or projects or categories that you're maybe planning to dive into in the near future? Yeah, there are some really exciting things that we've we've both just released and we're preparing to release in the coming weeks. We got another uh production guy on recently this this great guy will robinson from town and he's been really wonderful to have he's been coming in with a lot of fresh ideas and um so the, the last most recent house of tamworth was actually the spirit called crab trapper which really takes um the concept of those sort of like fetid subtleties of experience and combines it with like the sweeter notes of the culinary world. That one in particular is made with an invasive green crab species that's sort of been plaguing the coast of New Hampshire. So you got to come in and check that one out. That's a really interesting product. Um, he also just worked out this wonderful cordial that's made with strawberries and rhubarb. And this thing has mm. got the most juicy, delicious aroma I've ever experienced. And, um, That'll be coming out in the next few weeks, and it's it's not going to last very long at all. So. I'm sure. Yeah, it's it is rhubarb season after all. I'm man, that yeah. that brings me right back to childhood. My grandmother grew it and uh, strawberry rhubarb pie. Man, this time Absolutely. of year. Wow, um, this is definitely a unique conversation that we've had here. Is there? Any way that you would recommend that folks who are listening to this who might not be in your immediate general vicinity might go about getting their hands on a bottle of your spirits? Yeah, we do some online distribution through Sealbox. They, I believe, ship to a number of states. I'm not sure it's every state. We are permitted to ship within the state of New Hampshire, I believe. So if you reach out to us and you're in New Hampshire, you don't feel like driving up here. I think we can take care of that. But not all spirits are distributed. So there, we, we try to keep a reason for people to come in and appreciate the uh, beauty of Tamworth and New Hampshire in general. So sometimes you just got to hop in the car and face the gas prices, I guess. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, well, I want to respect your time here. Do you have time for just a few quick lightning round questions? Sure. Yeah, no problem. All right, let's do uh, a desert island scenario here. If you were stuck on a desert island for the rest of your life, and you can interpret the rules of that desert island however you want, um, what one bottle would you take along and what one cocktail would you take along? Jeez, um, that's a really good question. Um, a desert island. So I would want something that reminds me of something juicy and not so dry. So I would probably take our barrel aged Flora gin with us, which is sort of our summer seasonal garden gin. And that one was kind of made to represent the abundance of aromas that happen midsummer. Really just big flavors, juicy and almost tropical in a way. I've got to be honest, I don't drink a lot of cocktails. I'm sort of a, I'm sort of an academic um, spirit guy, and I really enjoy tasting things neat. Mm. Um, so if I had to say anything about mixing on a desert island, I would certainly bring an ice cooler that I could uh, maybe 
proof that 100 proof gin down a tad because, you know, as you proof things down, um, the aromas are less soluble and they, they really erupt out of the glass. So I think that would be my choice. For sure. For sure. I'm also, uh, also a gin, gin fanatic, uh, that, that is definitely my favorite category of spirits to judge. And, and, uh, I'm really glad that we're in a gin renaissance right now. So last, last question would be if, if you could have a dram with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you enjoy together? Just kind of paint us a picture. Oh, um, I think that I would choose to go back to medieval times when some of the great cathedrals were being built and choose to share in the experiential knowledge um, that was passed down from those builders that learned to work stone. Or in the case of some of the Scandinavian countries, some of the, the timber rites that built the stave churches and things like that. I'm really fascinated by the, the legacy of information and knowledge being passed down generationally. And to go back to a time when those pieces of knowledge were preserved, I think would be pretty special. Yeah. Well, what a way to wrap this up. Uh, I'm really grateful for the time that you've spent uh, sharing your knowledge uh, with our listeners. Um, I can't imagine the amount of time it spent for you to um, accrue this uh, biochemical expertise and then, uh, you know, pour it into these really tenderly made spirits. Uh, the deer slayer is of course delicious. Really glad that we were able to sample that on the air here. And, uh, I do hope that our listeners will, uh, take this as an opportunity to, uh, search out Tamworth distilling on social media, on Instagram, and of course, visit your website and learn more about, uh, some of the products and offerings that are available, um, either at the distillery where you can visit, or, uh, if you're not in this portion of the country, you know, maybe that you can have shipped to your doorstep. So what's the best way to, uh, just learn more about Tamworth in the digital space? Yeah, the website's great. Um, and through the website, you can get on our mailing list and the mailing list will give you all sorts of updates that are occurring throughout the year and particularly in the summer months when we've got a nice tourist season. So definitely sign up for that and you won't be disappointed. Awesome. Well, Matt, this has been tremendous. And I just want to thank you so much for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And... 
keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, flavor and distilling insights courtesy of distiller Matt Power of Tamworth Distilling, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.